If you have a Bible with you, open up to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, we've been doing a verse-by-verse study through the book of John. We've been in the Gospel of John for a couple of years, and I hope to get back and finish that last chapter in a few more weeks. But we decided a couple of weeks ago at an elder meeting that it would be helpful for me to address a lot of the things that we've been thinking about and talking about as people, as Christians, as your elder team that relates to obeying the government loving one another, and having the liberty to give each other a little bit of leeway in how we apply some of the principles that we see in Scripture. So last week, I kicked off the series by just saying uh, that, that we ultimately obey the government. The government is our ultimate authority. This week, I'm going to talk to you from the second half of Romans 13 and talk to you about how we need to be loving one another. So the title for this morning, as I explained during our announcement time, is why we're going back to small groups. And the reason why we're going back to small groups is that we need to be loving one another. And so I'm going to explain that in our message together this morning. So we're in Romans chapter 13. I'm going to read to you verses 8 through 14, and then we'll dive into our time together. The Apostle Paul writes this, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from your sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Romans 13. Thank you for your word that is inspired by the Holy Spirit that gives us life and wisdom and conviction and passion and teaches us how to love Christ and to love one another in a way that would be appropriate, patient, and deferring to one another to the best of our ability. This morning, God, we're praying for your Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts through your word, and that you would allow us to appreciate the times that we're in, because these times are, 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 they are ordained by you. You're the one who's brought about, ultimately, in your sovereignty, all that we're facing And that means you want to teach us something, something awesome about you and about our faith and about how we can love and relate to one another. Teach us great things this morning, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week, we looked at how God is the ultimate authority, not the government, but God has set up authorities that we are to submit to. God has established the home, he has established the government, and he has established the church. And each one of these institutions has been designed by God and serves as an important purpose and has a particular function. God has appointed a husband and a father to be the head of a home. God has appointed human governments to provide protection, provision, and to encourage human flourishing. God has also appointed godly elders to shepherd the flock of God, exercising oversight, not lording over those in the church, but serving as examples to the congregation. According to Ephesians 5, through 24, a wife should submit to her husband as the church submits to Christ. According to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, church members are to obey their leaders and submit to them as to those who will give an account. And in the same way, Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 talk about how citizens of a nation are to submit to their governing authorities. 
The problem arises when any one of these three authorities goes beyond its God-given jurisdiction and begins to make demands on what the other authority can or cannot do. For example, the church cannot dictate what happens in the home. And in the same way, the government cannot dictate what happens in the church. Even worse, if one of these three authorities abuses its God-given power, then God may choose to take that power away from them. As of this week, about 12,500 people have died from COVID-19 in our state of California. It's about 40 million people here in our state, which means you have about a 99.7% chance of living through this pandemic. The average age of someone dying from the coronavirus is 78 years old. The average age of dying in our country on any given year is 78 years old. Now, if nothing had been done to mitigate the spread of the coronavirus, it is possible that those numbers could be higher, but nothing is known for sure. What we do know is that if you have an immunocompromised condition, or if you're included in the elderly population, it is generally agreed upon that it would be best for you to be particularly careful during this time. However, we understand that for the rest of us, I believe that it's time for us to get back to life as we know it. (laughs) That's just where I'm at, all right? I think it's time for us to get back. Now, the CDC updated the COVID-19 death uh, the, the, the total tally and numbers of people who've died from February the 1st, 2020, through August the 22nd, 2020. And according to those stats released by the CDC this past week, they said that only 6% of the 153,504 deaths in our nation, only 6% of those are related to COVID-19 only. The other 94% had, on average, two or more pre-existing conditions, which meant when that person died, it's hard to tell whether it was COVID-19 only or they also died of another condition they already had, like COPD or pneumonia or heart disease or any lying factor. So we have to understand here that there's a greater chance that you will die in a car crash or from choking on your food or from drowning than you dying from the coronavirus. Now, again, I do want to acknowledge at Placerita Bible Church, we do know that this virus is real, that it is contagious, and that for some, it is deadly. Nobody's saying that those truths don't exist. We're just saying that the statistics of the parts of the population that really suffer to that degree are in suspect. Is it really, does it really warrant that we should shut down all of our schools and all of our businesses and all of our churches for the stats that we're hearing from the CDC itself? Does our society really need to shut down as a whole? One presidential candidate said this week that if the doctors told him so, that he would shut down our nation for the rest of the year. It's a scary time that we live in. And all of this is really leading to massive problems of understanding what is really going on. In addition to this, it's hard to trust a government when they are allowing people to avoid certain regulations when they are protesting, rioting, or looting. But when it comes to the church, they're telling the church exactly what they can and cannot do. And I want to remind you this morning that it ought to be ingrained in every true Christian and in our nature as Christ followers that we will obey God over man. And if push comes to shove, I'm going to go with God every time. And the ultimate authority is not the civil law, but it is God's law. And I believe that Romans 13 establishes that fact throughout the entire chapter. God's law trumps governmental law every 
time that there's a question of which one to follow. And when Peter and John were arrested a second time for preaching the gospel, Acts 5, 28 through 29 says, we strictly charge you not to teach in his name, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intended to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. So I would say, That when the secular authorities put themselves in the place of God by ruling over spiritual authorities, then civil disobedience is warranted. To say it another way, if the government forces you to do what God condemns or forbids you from doing what God commands, we must obey God over man. Now, to strengthen that argument a little bit more, I want to give you a little bit of uh, excerpt from church history. Samuel Rutherford, a well-known Puritan from the 17th century, wrote an outstanding and a famous treatise of this concept of civil disobedience, and the name of his book is Lex Rex. And it's not about dinosaurs, right? Lex Rex is about the law and the prince. Rutherford attacked the unchecked right of kings to rule as God's regent over and above God's law as given in the Bible. In other words, at any point, if the king's edict or decree superseded that of the sovereign God of the universe, it was, it was, uh, it was uh, civil disobedience then was not only a freedom, but a duty. This book helped form the bedrock of all post-17th century dissent against political tyranny in Europe and eventually in America as well. Rutherford argued that all men, kings included, are under the law of God and not above it. The state is to be administered according to God's law. And the acts of the state which contradict God's law were tyranny which is ruling, tyranny would simply be defined as ruling without the sanction of God. Now, Francis Schaeffer, who was a renowned theologian and philosopher of the last century, embraced Rutherford's arguments contained in Lex Rex, the law and the prince, and he particularly pointed out two that he appreciated the most. Number one, since tyranny is satanic, not to resist it is to resist God. And second, Because rulers are granted power conditionally by God, if rulers do not meet those conditions, then people have the right to obey God over man. Citizens have a moral obligation to resist unjust and tyrannical governments at all levels. And while the office which God has established is to be honored, the man and the woman in that office is disqualified from ruling when their policies violate God's standard. Schaefer points out that Rutherford was careful to warn that it is not single breaches of trust that call for resistance, but rather it is when the governing structure of the country is being destroyed through unjust and ungodly acts over time that the ruler is to be relieved or his or her authority to rule. We were told at the beginning of this pandemic, that millions of people in America were going to die, that our hospitals would be packed and overrun. And if we all didn't shelter from home, then somehow we're not doing our part. And then one by one, businesses have been declared as being essential and are able to operate again, albeit with limitations. And I say to you this morning that if strip clubs and if abortion clinics And if casinos are open in our state, so should the church be open. I'm saying to you this morning that the governor does not have the right to shut down the church. That it is our responsibility as citizens of this community and of this state and of this country to hold our government in check. And what I'm saying to you this morning is is that we are to operate as we have been since our beginning. If the church kicked off in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, they've been meeting every Sunday since the resurrection to worship Christ without constraints that have to be obeyed by some ungodly government. Now, we might pay a price for meeting together, 
but we're going to meet again together until Jesus comes back. We're not going back inside. We're not going back to live stream. We will worship together corporately until we meet our maker in the sky. That's what's going to happen at Placerita Bible Church. Now, if you're here this morning, you're certainly aware of all the battles that have been raging and all the court cases. I mentioned to you last week about the county of Los Angeles and John MacArthur, Grace Community Church, who we love and we support uh, so much of what is going on there. There have been even four attempts to place a temporary restraining order against Grace Community Church and Pastor John MacArthur. And every one of those attempts has failed. The Thomas More Society is defending Grace Community Church and special counsel Paul Jonah explained, quote, the court correctly concluded that Los Angeles County's renewed application for a temporary restraining order was both procedurally and substantively defective. This was their fourth unsuccessful attempt to attain a court order prohibiting indoor worship services at Grace Community Church. We look forward to fully vindicating our clients' constitutionally protected rights in subsequent proceedings for this important case. Close quote. Bottom line, there is no court order preventing Grace Community Church or any church in California from having church inside. There is a health order, but it has been deemed at this point as being unconstitutional. That's the argument that's being made. The next hearing, you, you can be in prayer for this, the next hearing is this Friday on September the 4th. It will be a huge day in court to determine whether or not that church and most likely subsequently all churches in our state are allowed to meet inside again. In addition to this, John MacArthur recently was told by the chief of police, who is the enforcer of the law, that the, the chief of police said to John, this is quoted on one of his podcasts, he said to him that we enforce not health orders, but we enforce real laws. Now, however you understand that may vary depending on your own conscience and your own understanding of this chapter, which is why we're taking the time to unpack uh, Romans chapter 13 and 14. And we've been reminded that, that the government does bear a sword. In, in many ways, it's the police who carry the sword, and they are not planning to use the sword against churches who are meeting peacefully and worshiping the king of the universe. Uh, the way that our state government has regulated restrictions against the church interfere with God's design for the church to meet effectively and to sing passionately and to fellowship lovingly. Can we really do all of those things when we're constrained either by our meeting space or what it is that we wear on our faces? It can be hard to sing and to talk to others and hard to care for others in the way that God has called us to. And the real gist of the court case that's going on right now, as I told you last week, is who's really breaking the law. Is it Governor Newsom or is it Pastor John MacArthur? That Governor Newsom was given a 60-day emergency lenience in order to, uh, to, to control what's going on in the state. And yet, for that to be continued, there's supposed to be a legislation that votes on and approves that continued power which has not happened to the best of my understanding. And so at this point, it's really the government that's overreaching into the church more so than it is the church somehow defying the government. I could also say that the fact is if each one of us here in this room, outdoor tent area, have somehow probably civilly disobeyed already. If at any point you have not had your mask on in public, you have civilly disobeyed. If at any point you've been within inside of six feet of someone outside of your family and accidentally touched them, then you have civilly disobeyed. If at any point you sang in the service this morning at church, you have already civilly disobeyed. If at any point you've had somebody in your home outside of your family during this quarantine, you have civilly disobeyed. And I'm saying to you this morning that I think that we should civilly disobey when it comes to those things. It's impossible for us to carry out the spirit of the Bible 
This is just my conviction, all right? I'll let you have yours. But I believe it's impossible to adequately carry out the spirit of the Bible when we are always masked up, always put at distance, never allowed to fellowship in homes, and told that we can only worship in a certain way outside. Now listen, I'm grateful to be outside. We can meet outside. We are meeting outside. And if you have a mask on this morning, I'm thankful that you're here, and I'm thankful that you have a mask on. More on that to follow. What I'm simply trying to say is, there is a law, there is God's law that we love each other, and there is liberty for us to exercise differences in some of the things that I'm saying this morning. And that's what this series is about. And so last week, I kicked off the law, if you will, Romans 13, 1 through 7, and I only got to the first four out of six principles. So just to review real quickly, number one, I talked to you last week about how the governing authorities have been established by God. That's verse one. Number two, whoever resists the authorities will receive judgment. Number three, rulers do not punish good conduct but evil. And number four, the government is to be God's servant for your good. What we didn't cover last week was point five and six. I'm going to touch on that briefly, and it's there on the outline and there in your notes. But number five says it is necessary to be in subject to the governing authorities. Verse five, therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Now, remember, verse five is connected with verse four that talks about how the one in authority who is God's servant is there for our good. But he does not bear the sword in vain. And I told you last week that the sword is not a feather that tickles. And it's not a switch that stings. It is a weapon that kills. And in this context of verse 4, I think that the author is talking about, he's talking about capital punishment. I don't think he's talking about the rules of the health department of whether or not a church should meet inside or outside or if you wear a mask or not. I think here he's talking about clear moral law, which is what the state's law is built on, whether they admit it or not, it's built on some type of moral law, told, told you last week, came from the Ten Commandments, that if one of those is broken, then there could be the government carrying out capital punishment, bringing out the vengeance of God on someone who has broken one of those types of laws. The government, when acting within its God-given design and purpose, carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And so that's why verse 5 says, therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. And so the two reasons we should obey the government when the government is acting in accordance with its divine privilege, the two reasons that we should submit to it are to avoid God's wrath and to maintain a clear conscience. This verse is saying that under normal circumstances, when civil disobedience is not warranted, then you must obey God's command to obey the governing authorities or face God's wrath. Romans 12, 18 and 19 says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And verse 5 is saying God might use the government to bring about his vengeance in certain circumstances. God will take care of what he takes care of. And if it's not through the governing authorities, then God will take care of it with his own direct punishment in hell forever. That's what God does. He's serious about us walking in obedience. And if we are in clear sin, then we should fear the wrath of God because God means business about rendering justice. The good news is, is that God is also a holy judge, a merciful Savior, and one who adopts us into his family so that even when we do break his law, he provides a way that we can avoid his wrath through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, not only are we wanting to avoid God's wrath as Christians, but we also want to avoid an offended conscience. To keep a clear conscience, we have to walk in obedience to God's word. And let me tell you, there's nothing better than having a clear conscience. In fact, Paul says in Acts 24, 16, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Christians should be going to great lengths to maintain a pure conscience before God. And in what 
they are doing and in how we are doing it matters to God. Your conscience is a tool that God uses to help provide guidelines for how to proceed in the gray areas as well as to convict you when you go astray. And your conscience, you must remember this, more on it next week, but your conscience is never the final authority. God's word is. Nevertheless, we are to strive to keep a clear conscience, and our conscience must be tethered to the Scripture. Now, point six that I gave to you uh, last week that we didn't get to is simply says this, Christians pay taxes because rulers are ministers of God. And then we, we would have looked at last week, verse six, uh, for because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities or ministers of God attending to this very thing. The Bible couldn't be more clear. You might be thinking, well, if we're going to civilly disobey the government and we're not going to have church in exactly the same way they told us to, then does that mean I can stop paying my taxes in 2020? And the answer is no. To me, that's a black and white, super clear. Jesus mentions it twice about paying your taxes. Once in Matthew 17, where he tells Peter to go catch a fish, and in that fish will be a coin, and he wants him to take that coin and go pay the temple tax for Peter and for Jesus himself. The more familiar place is in Matthew 22:17, where they come up to Jesus and they ask him, should we pay t- taxes to Caesar or not? Jesus, uh, in that interaction, they say, tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay uh, taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness is uh, the inscription on this? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, what? Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And from this passage, we understand that, that uh, paying taxes is not an issue of something that you could potentially civilly disobey on. So what I don't want you to do is take civil disobedience to the extreme and become a bunch of rebels yourself and to begin to buck the government in every single place that you can. I'm really saying to you this morning, the only place I'm comfortable doing that is if it's in direct violation of what I believe is a God-given principle to love God and to love others and to be able to do that adequately with a clear conscience. And so we have to understand here that we are to pay taxes to whom taxes are due. Notice how the verse also says, pay revenue to whom revenue is due. That could mean that you need to be paying your mortgage payment, rent, a car payment, a school loan, a personal loan, a utility bill, your credit card statement. The list goes on and on. We are to pay our taxes because God says so, and we are to pay all the revenues that we owe because God says so. And then we also see here in verse 7 that we are to also pay respect to whom respect is owed and honor to whom honor is owed. In addition to money, we're to give honor and respect. And sometimes it is uh, hard to do that, but we need to understand that it's the position that we respect. We want to pray for our leaders. We want to uh, respect the office and the person in general. We might disagree with them, but we can still honor them, pray for them, understand that they are in difficult places. 1 Peter 2.17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. And last week I told you that was the emperor Nero who burned down Rome, blamed the Christians for it, and then killed a lot of Christians. And so this is kind of concluding last week's message, and I wanted to take the time to do that because it really rolls right into this week's message, which is about loving one another. So now we're moving fully to this message, loving one another, and I'm not doing a full exposition of every verse like I typically would because this is a little bit of a thematic effort to address the times that we're living in, but doing it from Scripture. So this morning, I just want to give you three headings that help remind us of why it is that we're to love each other and how we can do that in small groups. Number one, loving one another is the fulfilling of the law. Your first blank, if you are taking notes, says we are obligated to love each other. Look at chapter 13 here in Romans verse 8, where it says, owe no one anything except to love each other. We are obligated to do that, to love each other. So right after Paul talks about how we need to pay all of our taxes and our revenues, he tells us that we need to owe no one anything except love. And when he says 
we need to owe no one anything. I don't think that he's saying that it's wrong to borrow money at any time. In fact, the Mosaic law gives allowance for borrowing money in Exodus twenty-two twenty-five. Psalm 15 verse 5 says the same thing. Both of these texts also guard against charging interest if you're lending to a brother who is in need. In fact, Jesus even said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 42, give to those Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And so Jesus also says that when you lend, that we're to do so in a way that would be seen as a gift. Luke 6.35, but love your enemies and do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. So here's what we're saying. Romans 13.8, when it says, owe no man anything, it is not saying that you cannot borrow money. Borrowing money is not a sin, but you must make your payments. And not to make your payments unless there is a completely uncontrollable circumstance is a sin. In fact, Psalm 37 verse 21 says, The wicked borrows but does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and he gives. So if you're borrowing with the mindset of, I will never pay back, and I'm trying to take advantage of the system, that would be a sinful motive. We are to pay back what we owe. Psalm 15.4 says we're to swear to our own hurt. Now again, the point of Romans 13.8 is to be a man of your word, to make your payments on time, to pay your bills, to be on a reasonable payment plan to pay what you owe. But if you really want to get to the heart of the passage, Paul is saying that the debt that we really owe each other is not one of money, but it's one of love. And so he's saying just as seriously as you would take this idea of paying your debts back in order to honor God and submit to those that you borrowed money from and to God's principle, even greater than that, I think, he's saying make sure that you're loving one another. Because this whole thing about submitting to the government cannot be fully understood without this principle of loving your neighbor as yourself. There's that responsibility too. Just like you owe this country your allegiance, you owe each other agape love. This word agape means to have a warm regard for and an interest in one another. It means to practice and express one's love in tangible ways. It means to prove your love. And out of all the one another's in the New Testament, loving each other is the one that best describes the Christian's duty to his neighbor. In fact, I would say that all of the one another's of the New Testament, like encouraging one another and caring for one another and forgiving one another and praying for one another and serving one another all flow out of a heart of love. And godly love is characterized in Ephesians 4 verse 2 by humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verses 4 through 7, we read that love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It, is not, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth that love bears all things, that love believes all things, that love hopes all things, and that love endures all things. So the greatest test of love is the willingness to sacrifice its own needs and welfare for that of another. And Jesus Christ is to be our example to follow. John 15, 13, Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. And the love that God commands is pure. It is sacrificial. It is focused on others and not on self. It is a choice that you make every single day. 1 Peter 1.22 says this about obeying the truth of loving your neighbor. It says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And the idea of loving earnestly is to stick out your neck to exert yourself to the greatest degree possible in order that you can love one another. And my question to you this morning is, are you loving one another in this way? My fear is that our church has been swamped in the debate 
about whether or not we should meet inside or outside or wear a mask or not, instead of in the activity of we are to be loving each other to the greatest degree possible, which means no matter what you think about what I've been saying about our relationship to the government and civil disobedience and where that does apply and where that doesn't apply, it is never to take the place of loving your neighbor and to love each other with respect and appreciation and kindness. And I'm asking you this morning, think back to all the conversations you've had with people on this hot topic and ask yourself in every conversation at every point, have I loved my neighbor even when we saw it differently? Have I really reached out and just expressed my identification with them as a brother or a sister in Christ? We are called to love with all of our heart and with all of our mind and with all of our strength. And we're to love others in the same way that Jesus has loved us. And not only are we obligated to love each other, but we are, your second blank, we're obligated to fulfill the law. Verses 8 through 10, we read, For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Let me just give you my take on that. He's saying here, look, with the whole government thing, that's important. You need to know what you believe about that. You need to study scripture and listen to to what you've been listening to and other stuff that we've all been listening to and formulate a conviction and a place where you land and you feel comfortable applying those principles in your life. But he's also saying here, don't forget about love. And at the end of the day, while everything is happening politically, the church in places is becoming unraveled. I've already heard about one church that's already split over this issue. The church back east, they just said they could not come together, the elders could not come together, and the church is already split in the middle of COVID-19 because they can't agree and love each other in the midst of these difficult times. And I just want to remind us that just as important as it is to have deep convictions about the first part of Romans 13, we need to have deep convictions, and I might even say deeper convictions about loving one another because that's what God really cares about. Does he really care about the first part? Yes, but we're not going to all agree on how to apply every single thing in the first part of that. But we can all agree on we are to love one another. And one way to obey the law of love is by keeping God's commandments is why he mentions in verse 9. He's like, look, the governing authorities are there, but don't forget about my law. The Ten Commandments, he mentions four of them. You shall not commit adultery, murder, steal, or covet. And all of these commandments, as well as any other commandment, can be summed up in loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. This is built off of the Mosaic Law as well. Leviticus 19.18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Jesus reiterated this in the second of the greatest commandments. As you remember, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then in Matthew twenty two thirty nine, 39, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so when you are loving your neighbor, then you're not going to fall into lust and adultery. When you are loving your neighbor, you're not going to get angry and murder. When you're loving your neighbor, you're not going to cheat or steal anything away from them. If you're loving your neighbor, then you're not going to covet their house, their Tesla. Did I say that? Sorry. Their car. I'm struggling with that one right now. I got to confess that. All right. You're not going to covet the other possessions that your neighbor has. Therefore, love is fulfilling the law. So as we keep in mind what's happening in the first half of the chapter, he's like, hey, don't forget love because in all of it, you've got to be loving in order to really fulfill the law. Now, here at Placerita Bible Church, we want to obey the government, but we also want to love our neighbor. And we do not believe that we have been able to adequately and faithfully follow the one another's of the New Testament without having church in person. Furthermore, I believe that we can best practice the one another's in a small group setting. 
Therefore, we are continuing our small group ministry. Beginning of the year, when COVID hit off in March, we cut down all the small group ministries. We instructed the small group leaders, do not meet with your small group during this time. Now, nothing has changed with the health order, but something has changed in our hearts. And what has changed is we cannot adequately fulfill the one another's of the New Testament if we're not loving one another. And so we are now releasing, if you will, the small group leaders to manage their small group in whatever way they see best fit. We've encouraged them to try to meet outside if they can. Our small group meeting met in someone's backyard last night. If they want to meet inside, they can do that. If you want to come to small group, you can do that. If you want to wear a mask, you can do that. If you don't want to wear a mask, you don't have to. If you don't want to show up, but you want to zoom in, we would like to try to make it available where people can zoom in. All I'm trying to say is that we're trying to think of practical ways that we can love one another and not divide over this issue. And I want to talk here just for a moment about this issue of wearing the mask or not. I wasn't going to do it, but I just felt like I had to keep talking about it because everybody's like, do we wear a mask? Do we not? Well, listen to me. The CDC and the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health have issued this general order that residents wear masks. And so in LA County, you're supposed to wear a mask when you are in public. And as you know, you must wear a mask when you enter into Walmart or into Costco or into any building in order to receive service. And we've also been told that we are to wear a mask outside if you're in a public situation. We've been told that you must stay socially distanced by six feet from anyone who doesn't live in your home. The research of whether wearing masks slows the spread of COVID-19 or not varies from study to study. I personally do not believe that wearing a mask at church is something that every Christian has to do in order to honor and obey God. I believe that the American public has been deceived over the details of the virus, and has been driven to fear. We have emailed you, as a church, all of the guidelines from the CDC and have posted those guidelines in our meeting areas. We have not enforced the wearing of masks because it is not the church's job to enforce a health protocol. My desire this morning is to tell you that I believe you are free in Christ to wear a mask if you like, and you are free in Christ to not wear a mask while you are here at our church. I believe that you are no better if you do wear a mask, and you are no worse if you don't wear a mask. Each person must live according to their own conscience and according to their own preference. And if you choose not to wear a mask, Please do not make it a point of contention with your neighbor. If you choose not to wear a mask, please don't do it defiantly or in a way that flaunts your freedom. I respectfully ask you to do what you do in a way that shows a love for God and a love for your neighbors. So what does that mean, Adam? That means don't chide others If they choose to wear a mask, don't make fun of those who do. Respect the fact that they may be elderly, they may have a compromised immunity, or they may have a conviction or a strong preference that's different than yours that informs them that they're going to wear their mask at all times while in public. And I ask that you would love that individual. Do you hear me? That you would love them and that you would show them the kindness of Christ. I recently had a friend tell me last week that he had not been going to church for months because the church where he attended, few people wore masks. He told me that he got tired of being at home and live streaming, so he and his family decided to go to church. He also told me that he had an immunocompromised condition where his doctor told him specifically, if you're out in public or you go to church or anywhere else, you need to wear a mask. So my friend went to his church and wore a mask. And as he showed up there at church, the first thing that someone said to him was, 
take off your silly mask. It doesn't do anything anyway. My friend then told me that when he left the church, he's not sure if he's ever going to go back. Do you know why? Because he didn't feel loved. People need to understand that the issue at hand is not wearing a mask or not. As important as that question is, and you must answer it according to your own conscience, and I've tried to give you as many principles as I can from these, these, these messages, but the point is, we got to love each other. And if you wear a mask or not, I don't care. You say, what do you mean you don't care? I just don't care anymore. I want you to love Christ and love people, and if you come in with a mask, I'm going to love you. And if you leave with a mask on, I'm going to love you. And if you never wear a mask, I'm going to love you. Get this. If you have your mask halfway on, hanging around your ear, I'm going to love you. I've done the same thing. You've seen me here. I've worn a mask. I haven't worn a mask. I've done the ear thing. Because it's not about the mask. It's about your heart. And it's about loving Christ and loving others. And we must come to a point where we just get that. We're like, you know what? We're not going to be the church that says there's only one way. So likely what might happen as we continue to flesh this out as elders is we'll have an opportunity for you to either meet eventually indoor or outdoor, wear a mask or not wear a mask so that we can accommodate your conscience wherever you are. And that's okay. It's not like you're more spiritual if you do. You're more spiritual if you don't. Even if you're here this morning and you feel a little bit uncomfortable because some of us don't have masks on, we love you. And we're glad that you're here. And we would encourage you to come if you'd like. You can sit a little bit further out if you'd like. You can live stream from home if you like. It's not, this is not like a judgment that is a clear right or a clear wrong. It is a God-given freedom. Get this. I don't think God cares if you wear a mask. But I do think he cares about your heart and your motive of why you're doing what you're doing and that you're also sensitive to your conscience that as you study God's word and the principles, so if you're asking me, Adam, where are you at on this? Well, look, at first I wore a mask all the time or as much as I could. And then as the more I kept thinking about it and praying about it and studying and listening to others, it just got to the point to where I'm like, I cannot effectively carry out the one another's as a Christian in the way that I believe that God's called me to as a pastor, by wearing a mask to where I can't even hear half the things people are saying to me. And when I'm walking around after or before service, I'm trying to talk and shepherd people's souls. And half the time, I'm just nodding like, yeah, 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 all right. Pray for that guy. Pray for that guy. Because I didn't quite get what they're saying. And then maybe on the inside, there's something that's tearing them apart. So for me, I'm just like, you know, what? I've gotten to the point to where even the elders have encouraged me. Hey, Adam, we get it. That's your job. We want you to make sure you're listening and you're looking and people can hear what you're saying, but we're okay. We have some of our elders who wear masks all the time. Some don't. Go talk to them about it. But the main thing is what we're saying is at this point, we're going to love you anyway. Please do not do any wrong to your neighbor by telling them to put their mask on or telling them to take their mask off. Just allow them to be who they are, to do what they do, and love them anyway. Let love be supreme in our hearts and in our church of how we treat one another. Are you joining me in that? Praise the Lord. Thank you for the three hand claps. So praise God. <laughs> we want to love each other. Maskless or masked up. Lone Ranger or no Lone Ranger, all right? We're going to love each other. Did they wear a Lone Ranger, the mask? I don't know. All right, the masked man. All right, number two, let's move on. Loving one another is filling God's law. Secondly, just real quick, number two, knowing the time is renewing your focus in life. Your next blank says time is of the essence. Time is of the essence. Verse 11 tells us here, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. So the word time here is not the Greek word chronos, which means chronology, but it is the Greek word kairos, which means a period of time, such as an era or an age. And he's saying to Christians, you've got to wake up from your sleep because he's saying that we need to be busy loving each other because Jesus is coming back soon. Time is of the essence No man knows the day or the hour 
where life will be over as we know it. So while we have every day on earth, we want to maximize our opportunity to love one another. I believe that when Paul says salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed, I think that he's saying this about the final aspect of our salvation. You understand that when you're initially saved, that's what theologians call your justification. You've been declared righteous before God based on the cross. And through repentance and faith, you've been saved. And then you enter into your sanctification immediately, which is your Christian walk. And then when you die or when Christ comes back is your glorification. So justification, sanctification, glorification, in a sense, are all part of the bigger overarching understanding of our salvation. So when he says our salvation is nearer than it's ever been, I'm thinking that he's talking about your glorification. And so since we know it's nearer than ever, we need to stop being selfish, stop being self-focused, stop being spiritually lazy. We are to be the church of Jesus Christ of the present-day saints. And the way that we do that is to love others with all that we have. We're to love each other like there's no tomorrow. And we're to stick together no matter what. And so he's telling us, wake up. Just like he does in Ephesians 5.14, awake, O sleeper. In 1 Thessalonians 5.6, let us not sleep as others do, but let us wake and serve each other. It's what it's saying. Life is too short for us to do anything but to love God with all we have and to love each other in the way that God's commanded us to. And if anything, 2020 should go down as a year that reminded us, man, we got to love each other. Life is hard. Life is difficult. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but I know I'm going to love my brothers and my sisters in Christ, and together we will get through, and together we will serve one another. And another aspect of that, verse 12, your next blank says, throw off the darkness and put on the light. Verse 12, the night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. The word night here is a reference to spiritual darkness. The word day here is a reference to spiritual light. So if you are in Christ, if you've been washed by his blood, if you've been freed from your sin, if you are a new creation this morning, then you are to cast off the works of darkness. And according to Colossians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, this means that you're to cast off all anger, all wrath, all malice, all slander, all obscene talk, and all lies. According to Galatians 5, 19 through 21, we're to cast off the works of the flesh, which includes sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Why? Because God's called us to walk in love. And how can you walk in love when you're walking in sin? We are to walk in in the armor of light. You are to put on the breastplate of righteousness and the belt of truth and the shoes of the gospel and the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit. And if we're going to love one another in the way that God instructs us to, we need to throw off darkness and to walk in light, which means this. Every time that you're getting angry at each other and you're debating this whole thing about mask and quarantine and school and work and what you do and what another family does, and evil enters in, and you begin to judge that person in your heart, and you begin to spiritually put yourself above them because of what you're doing instead of what they're doing, you're entering into sinful ground and sinful territory. And he's telling us in this passage, just put it all off. Love Christ and love one another. And our last point this morning about loving one another, number three, walking properly is putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. Your next blank says, put off sins that divide. Love us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and in jealousy. Again, we got to understand that our Christian walk is a lifelong walk. It's not so much a sprint as it is a marathon. It is a daily battle, but God supplies daily grace and Jesus gives the victory. And it doesn't matter who you are and what you are facing. If you are walking in the power of the spirit and not of the flesh, you can put off orgies, which are drunken parties involving unrestrained indulgence and alcoholic beverages or drugs of any kind, including pot. No pot orgies, please. All right. The idea here is he's saying put all that off along with what else? Sexual immorality, sensuality, 
And he says to put off what? Quarreling and jealousy. I've called these sins that divide because oftentimes fights break out due to quarreling and jealousy even in those kinds of contexts. And I'm praying that as a church, we would put off this kind of behavior, especially in light of this message, the part about quarreling and jealousy. Yes, we want to be pure in all the other areas as well, but particularly when it comes to quarreling and jealousy about the things that we've discussed. And I'm saying to you that small groups are to be a time of sanctification and an alternative to wanting to go to a worldly party anyway. Who wants to go to a party like that that's filled with debauchery and darkness when you can hang out with your small group? So spend time together with true Christians, fostering true Christian fellowship and encouragement and edification. And I'm saying we need that now more than ever. More than ever during these spiritually challenging times, we need to be together having meaningful fellowship in a Christ-exalting way. And so we're kicking that off this week with small groups. As you leave the tent this morning, then you can sign up for a small group on one of the tables right here to my right. It lists all the groups, when they meet, where they meet, what they're discussing, and you can take your phone and even take, a, take the QRS thing, and it'll come right up. You can fill out your information. We want people here at Placerita Bible Church to be in a small group because we want to love you. We can only love you to one degree if you come in this great tent, you leave this morning, what a great message, or I hated that message, never going back, whatever you think about it. But if you don't get, eventually get in a small group, you're going to get lost And you're not going to be able to adequately love each other. And even though it's civil disobedience, we believe that it's biblical obedience for us to practice to one another. That's why we're kicking off small groups, women's ministry, college ministry, youth ministry has already been meeting. And we hope to have other ministries opening up for you this fall. And then finally, your last blank, put on Christ who satisfies, verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. We're to put on Christ. That's what God's called us to do. Every part of our life is about putting him on. It means that we're saved by his sacrifice, that we're drawn to his character. There's a change that happens to you when you are saved. You look different, and you dress different, and you act different. You put off the old self. You are renewed in the spirit of your mind, and you put on the new self. That is what Christ has called us to do. And in doing that, we're to make no provision for the flesh. That word provision means any forethought or any foresight. In other words, if you're thinking from this sermon that you want to get in an argument with somebody about what I said or didn't say, that's, you got to put that off right now. I'm walking out of here just saying, amen, brother. Because if you're ready to fight in a sinful way, you just need to be careful. You, of course, you can ask me questions. You can challenge me. I'm just saying, you understand what I'm saying. If it's a quarreling spirit that's divisive, we want to put that off and put it out of our midst. Instead, we got to understand that the battle is in our minds. The battle is in our heart. And sure, there's temptation all around us, but as Christians, we are called to mortify the flesh. We have Jesus dwelling inside of us, and he is worthy of all of our attention, and he's worthy of all of our affection. And he is the, our, our, he's our Lord, and he's our master. He's our joy and our delight. He is our rock and our fortress. He's our shepherd and our guide. He's our refuge and our strong tower. He is our deliverer and our mighty warrior. He is enough. He's more than enough. He's all that we could ever ask for or imagine. I'm talking about Jesus this morning. We have an opportunity to worship together a victorious Savior, a righteous ruler, and a forever friend. And so if you want to be a loving neighbor this morning, let me encourage you to put on Jesus Christ. Let him rule your heart and interact with each other in such a way that shows his love. And next week, we'll look at, again, the liberty that God has given us, particularly through our conscience, of why it is that we land slightly in different places as different people. If you're here today, You don't know Christ. I don't want to close the service without calling you into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus is God. He was incarnated in the flesh. He never sinned, and he died on a cross for sinners like you and like me. 
And if you're visiting this morning and you've never bowed the knee to Christ and you've never repented of your sin and you've never trusted in the fact that Jesus was crucified and he was raised on the third day, I'm calling you this morning out of confusion and I'm calling you out of darkness and I'm calling you out of self-righteousness and I'm calling you out of wherever you are and I'm calling you into the light. I call you this day to put your faith in Christ. Tell him that you are a wretched sinner. Ask him to forgive you of all of your sin. Invite him into your life to transform you so that you can have real hope and real peace and experience the love that he has for you. If you're here this morning and you want to make that commitment to Christ, we're going to have a couple of couples right over here on my left, your right, after this last song. We want to invite you to come forward and talk to these couples about how you can commit your life to Christ. We want you to know that more important than anything this morning is that you would know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you're here today, you have other questions, other challenges, other difficulties, you need prayer, these same couples will be available to pray with you, to minister to you, because we want you to know that we love you. And we're so thankful that you're here this morning. Why don't you pray with me as we prepare to sing one final song. Dear God, thank you again for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to look at your word. Thank you for the opportunity to try to gain some clarity on what it means to love you and to love our neighbor. God, we know it's not all easy. We know it can be difficult, but we know that you're greater than anybody here that you're greater than our thoughts and our arguments, that you're greater than our best days and our worst days. God, you're greater than our differences. We're praying that you would move in our hearts this morning and give us some freedom to worship you with unhindered passion and that you would give us some understanding of how to love you and to love one another regardless of where we might land. God, I pray that you would help us as an elder team as we continue to sharpen each other and to talk together this week and in the weeks to come that you would grant us the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. God, that you would be with our members this morning wherever we land on, on things. God, we want to land in the love place where we love you with all that we are. And so as we sing this last song, as we head out this morning, I pray that we would feel and sense and experience your love like never before. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.